Part Two of Chapter Twenty Eight of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Chapter Twenty Eight. Part Two. Both wife and sister were sure he would do no such thing. They thought the kindest thing Mr. Gray could do would be to go out the back way and see that the constable was kept up to his duty. He promised to do so, and that he would speak to Dr. Levitt, to have some of Gray and Rowland's men sworn in as special constables, if such a measure should appear to be desirable. "'I do not know how to believe all this now,' said Margaret. "'It seems so causeless and ridiculous.' In Birmingham we could never have given credit to the story of a, such a riot about nothing. Morris was not sure of this. In large towns there were riots sometimes for very small matters, or on account of entire mistakes. She had always heard that one of the worst things about living in a village is that when the people once get a wrong idea into their heads there is no getting it out again, and that they will even be violent upon it against all reason but such things she knew to happen occasionally in towns. Another knock. It was Mr. Rowland, and Hester's heart turned sick at there being no news of her husband. Mr. Rowland had every expectation, of course, that Mr. Hope would be quite safe, and that this would turn out a disturbance of very slight consequence. But he would just ask whether it would not be advisable to close the window-shutters. If stones should find their way into the parlours, it might be disagreeable to the ladies. There was no doubt of that. But would not closing the shutters be a hint to the people outside to throw stones? Well, perhaps so. He only thought he would offer the suggestion, and see if he could be of any service to the ladies. Morris, go up to the attic and watch. And, Margaret, do you stay here? Yes, Mr. Rowland, said Hester, fixing her glorious eyes full on him. You can be of service to us, if my husband outlives this day. You ought to pray that he may, for, if not, it is your wife who has murdered him. Mr. Rowland turned as pale as ashes. We know well that you have no share in all this injury. We believe that you respect my husband, and have friendly feelings towards us all. I will spare you what I might say, what Mrs. Rowland should sink to the earth to hear, if she were standing where you stand. I look upon you as no enemy. You do me only justice, said Mr. Rowland, leaning upon the chair which Hester had brought for herself. I wish to do you justice, and therefore I warn you that, if you do not procure complete protection for my husband, not only for this day but for the future, if you do not cause your wife to retract her slanders— Stop, Mrs. Hope, this is going too far, said Mr. Rowland drawing himself up, and putting on an air of offended dignity. "'It is not going too far. You cannot, you dare not, pretend to be offended with what I say, when you know that my noble husband has been injured in his character and his prospects, attacked in his domestic peace, and now exposed to peril of his life by the falsehoods your wife has told. I tell you that we do not impute her crimes to you.' If this is justice, you will prove it by doing your full duty to my husband. If you decline any part of this duty, if you countenance her slanders, if you shrink from my husband's side in whatever we may have to go through, 
if you do not either compel your wife to do us right or do it yourself in opposition to her you are her partner in guilt as well as in life and lot consider what a situation you place me in but what would you have me do i would have you see that every false charge she has brought is retracted every vile insinuation recanted you must make her say everywhere that my husband has not stolen dead bodies that he is not a plotter against the peace and order of society that he has not poisoned a child by mistake or cut off a sound limb for the sake of practice and amusement your wife has said all these things and you know it and you must make her contradict them all consider what a situation you place me in said mr rowland again be generous hester said margaret do not trample on a wretched man cried mr rowland covering his face with his hands consider be generous exclaimed hester in a softened tone i might well say consider what a situation my husband is placed in and that i must see justice done to him before i can be generous to others but i have such a husband that i can afford to spare the wretched and be generous to the humbled go now and do your duty by us and the next time you hear your wife say that we do not love and are not happy tell her that if we forbear to crush her it is because we are too strong for her too strong in heart however weak in fortunes because we are strong in a peace which she cannot poison and a love which she will never understand even at a moment like this and while feeling that she could not have said the things that hester said margaret's eyes swam in tears of joy here was her sister in a moment of that high excitement when nothing but truth ventures upon utterance acknowledging herself blessed in peace which could not be poisoned and love which the vile could not understand the day whatever might be its events was worth enduring for this mr rowland walked once or twice up and down the hall wiped his brows and then evidently unable to endure hester's presence said he would let himself out and there await mr hope's arrival or anything else that might occur oh would he ever come it seemed to hester like a week since she had given him his umbrella and seen him right away hark surely this must be it certainly was this horse this time yes there was morris calling from the stairs that her master was fighting his way down the street there was charles giving notice that the crowd was running round from the back to the front of the house there was the noise among the people outside the groaning the cries now ma'am said morris breathless with the haste she had made down the stairs morris supposed her mistress would softly let down the chain open the door just wide enough for hope to slip in and shut bolt and chain it again this was what hester had intended but her mood was changed she bade the servants all step out of sight and then threw the door wide open going forth herself upon the steps the people had closed round hope's horse but philip was pushing his in between the mob and their object and riding round and round him with a sort of ludicrous gravity which lowered the tone of the whole affair to margaret's mind and gave her great relief mr rowland was shaking hands with hope with one hand and holding the bridle of the uneasy horse with the other hope himself was bespattered with mud from head to foot and his umbrella was broken to pieces he nodded cheerfully to hester when she threw open the door 
When she held out her hand to him with a smile as he ascended the steps, the noise of the crowd was suddenly hushed. They understood rather more of what they saw than of anything that could be said to them. They allowed Charles to come out and lead the horse away round the corner to the stable. They stood stock still, gaping and staring, while Hope invited Mr. Rowland in, and Mr. Rowland declined entering, while that gentleman shook hands with the ladies, spoke with Mr. Enderby, mounted Mr. Enderby's horse, and rode off. They saw Philip turn slowly into the house with the family party, and the door closed before they thought of giving another groan. "'Well, love,' said Hester, looking anxiously at her husband. "'You made good battle,' said Philip. "'Yes, I had a pretty hard fight of it from the toll-bar hither,' said Hope, stretching vigorously. "'They wrenched my whip out of my hand, five hands to one, but then I had my umbrella. I broke it to pieces with wrapping their knuckles.' "'Which are hard as their pates,' observed Philip. "'What are we to do next?' "'If they do not disperse presently, I will go and speak to them. "'But I dare say they have had enough of the show for to-day. "'Mrs. Plumstead must have satisfied them with her oratory. "'That poor woman's face and voice will haunt me when I have forgotten all the rest. "'One had almost rather have her against one "'than that such screaming should be on one's behalf. "'Now, my love,' How has the morning gone with you? Very pleasantly, I would say, for it from her looks, said Philip, and Hester's face was certainly full of the beauty of happiness. Thank God the morning is over. That is all I have to say about it, replied she. Surely those people outside are growing more noisy, observed Margaret. I must change my clothes, in case of its being necessary to speak to them, said Hope. I look too like a victim at present. While he and Hester were out of the room, Philip told Margaret how her brother had been treated at the almshouses. He had narrowly escaped being pulled from his horse and thrown into the pond. He had been followed halfway to Deerbrook by a crowd throwing stones and shrieking, and just when he had got beyond their reach he had met Philip and learned that he had the same thing to go through at the other extremity of his journey. Finding that both of his doors were surrounded, he had judged it best to make for the front, coming home as nearly as possible in his usual manner. He had kept his temper admirably, joking with his detainers, while dealing his blows upon their hands. "'Where will all this end?' cried Margaret. "'With some going to dinner, and others to supper, I imagine,' replied Philip, stepping to the window. "'From what I see, that seems likely to be the upshot, for here is Sir William Hunter talking to the people. I had rather he should do it than hope.' "'And, Margaret, I had rather set my mischievous sister to do it than either. "'This uproar is all of her making, I am afraid.' "'Hester has been telling Mr. Rowland so this morning.' "'I'm glad of it. "'He must help me to work upon her fears, "'if there is nothing better left to operate upon.' "'You will not succeed,' said Margaret. "'Your sister is as strong a heroine in one direction "'as mine is in another. "'She shall yield, however.' She may be thankful that she is not here to-day. If she was, I would have her out upon the steps and make her retract everything, and if she should not be able to speak, I would stand by her and say it for her. Oh, Philip, what a horrible idea! Not half so horrible as the mischief she has done. Why, Margaret, if you were one-tenth as part as guilty as Priscilla is, I should require you to make reparation. Indeed, I hope you would, or rather that— 
"'But do not let us conjure up such dreadful images, my Margaret. "'You never wronged any one, and you never will.' "'Edward never did, I am sure,' said Margaret. "'Not even by poisoning children or cutting off limbs for sport? "'Are you quite sure, love? "'What is Sir William doing here with only his groom? "'He and the people look in high good humour with each other, "'with all this shaking of hands and nodding and laughing. "'I cannot conceive what he can be saying to them.' for there are not three faces among the whole array that look as if they belong to rational creatures. Never mind, said Margaret. If what he says sends them away, I care for nothing else about it. Oh, but I do. One would like to be favoured with a specimen of this kind of rural oratory. I ought to benefit by all the oratory that comes in my way, you know, so I shall just open the window an inch or two, now he is drawing hitherward, and take a lesson." It seemed as if Sir William Hunter desired that his powers of persuasion should be expended on none but the immediate objects of them, for whatever he said was spoken as he bent from his horse, and with the air of a mystery. Many a plump red face was thrust close up to his, many a pair of round staring eyes was puckered up with mirth as he spoke, the teamster in his olive-coloured smock, the hedger in his shirt-sleeves, and the little bumpkins who had snatched a holiday from scaring the crows all seemed, by their delight, to be capable of entering into the baronet's method of argumentation. All this stimulated Philip's curiosity to learn what was the speechifying tended to. He could catch only a few words, and those were about a new man. Teach him to take himself off. All bad things come to an end. New state of things soon. Philip was afraid there was treachery here. Margaret had no other expectation from the man, the tyrannical politician who bore a grudge against a neighbour for having used his constitutional liberty according to his conscience. Some spectacle now drew the attention of the crowd another way. It was Lady Hunter, in her chariot and greys, steadily pacing through the village. She had heard that there was some commotion in Deerbrook, and, as sights are rare in the country, she thought she would venture to come to the village to shop rather than wait for Sir William's account of the affair in the evening over their wine and oranges, and before he had dropped off into his nap. She rightly confided in the people that they would respect her chariot and greys, and allow her to pass amidst them in safety and honour. She had never seen a person mobbed. Here was a good opportunity. It was even possible that she might catch a glimpse of the little ladies in their terrors. At all events, she should be a great person, and see and hear a great deal, so she would go. Orders were given that she should be driven quickly up to the milestone beyond the toll-bar, and then very slowly through Deerbrook to Mrs. Howell's. Her servants were prompt, for they, too, longed to see what was going forward, and thus they arrived, finding a nice little mob ready-made to their expectations, and no cause of regret, but that they arrived too late to see Mr. Hope get home. There were no ladies in terror within sight, but then there was the affecting spectacle of Sir William's popularity. In full view of all the mob, Lady Hunter put a corner of her embroidered handkerchief to each eye, on witnessing the affection of his neighbours to her husband, shown by the final shaking of hands which was now gone through. Sir William then rode slowly up to the carriage door, followed by his groom, who touched his hat. Orders were given to drive on, and then Lady Hunter's servants touched their hats. The carriage resumed its slow motion, and Sir William rode beside it, 
his hand on the door, and his countenance solemn as if he was on the bench, instead of on horseback. The great blessing of the arrangement was that everybody followed. Lady Hunter having come to see the mob, the mob now in return went to see Lady Hunter, and, while they were cherishing their mutual interest, the family in the corner-house were left in peace to prosecute their dinners. Philip threw up the window which looked into the garden, and then ran down to bring Margaret some flowers to refresh her senses after the hurry of the morning. Margaret let down the chain of the hall-door, and Morris laid the cloth, as she had sent Charles to sweep down the steps and pavement before the house, that all things might wear as much as possible their usual appearance. Hester ordered up a bottle of her husband's best ale, and the servants went about with something of the air peculiar to a day of frolic. "'Dear heart! Lady Hunter! Can it be your ladyship?' exclaimed Mrs. Howell, venturing to show her face at the door of her darkened shop, and to make free entrance of her most exalted customer. "'Good heavens, your ladyship! Who would have thought of seeing your ladyship here on such a day?' cried Miss Miskin. "'Where's Bob, Miss Miskin? Do, Miss Miskin, send Bob to take down the shutters. That is, if your ladyship thinks that Sir William would recommend it. If Sir William thinks it is safe, that is my criterion.' "'I hope we are all safe now, Mrs. Howell,' replied the lady. Sir William's popularity is a most fortunate circumstance for us all, and for the place at large. Oh, dear your ladyship, what should we be not to estimate Sir William? We have our faults like other people, but really, if we did not know how to value Sir William— Thank heaven, said Miss Miskin, we have not fallen so low as that. Now your ladyship can see a little of our goings-on. Now the shutters are down— but, dear heart, your ladyship would not have wondered at our putting them up. I am sure I thought for my part that that middle shutter would never have gone up. It stuck your ladyship. Oh, cried Mrs. Howell, putting her hands before her face, as if the recollection was even now too much for her. The middle shutter stuck. Bob had got it awry and jammed it between the other two, and there nothing that Bob could do would move it. And there we heard all the noise at the distance, the cries, your ladyship, and the shutter would not go up. And Miss Miskin ran out, and so did I. Did you really? Well, I must say I admire your courage, Mrs. Howell. Oh, your ladyship, in a moment of desperation, you know, if, if anybody had seen Miss Miskin's face, I'm sure as she tugged at the shutter, it was as red, really scarlet. And I'm sure so was yours, Mrs. Howell downright crimson. And after all, resumed Mrs. Howell, we should never have got the shutter up if Mr. Tucker had not had the politeness to come and help us. But we are talking all this time, and perhaps your ladyship may be almost fainting with the fright. Would not your ladyship step into my parlour and have a little drop of something? Let me have the honour, a glass of malt port wine, or a drop of cherry bounce, Miss Miskin, you will oblige us. The cherry bounce, you know. Miss Miskin received the keys from the girdle with a smile of readiness, but Lady Hunter declined refreshment. She explained that she felt more collected than she might otherwise have done, from her not having been taken by surprise. She had been partly aware, before she left the hall, of what she should have to encounter. Dear heart, what courage! Goodness, how brave! I could not be satisfied to remain safe at the hall, you know, when I did not know what might be happening to Sir William, so I ordered the carriage, and came. 
"'It was a very anxious ride, I assure you, Mrs. Howell, "'but I found, when I got here, "'that I need not have been under any alarm for Sir William. "'He has made himself so beloved "'that I believe we have nothing to fear for him under any circumstances. "'But what can we think, Mrs. Howell, "'of those who try to create such danger?' "'What, indeed, ma'am, any one, I am sure, "'who would so much as dream of hurting a hair of Sir William's head?' as i said to miss miskin when mr tucker told us sir william was coming among them that's the criterion said i as it happens sir william is in no danger i believe but no thanks to those who are at the bottom of this disturbance it is no merit of theirs that sir william is so popular no indeed your ladyship we may thank heaven for that not them but what is to be done your ladyship i declare it is not safe to go on in this way it makes one think of being burnt in one's bed and all three shuddered sir william will take the right measures you need not doubt mrs howell sir william looks forward sir william is very cautious though from his intrepidity some might doubt the safety of deerbrook may very well be left to sir william no doubt your ladyship no doubt we should be really afraid to go to our beds if we had not sir william to rely on as miss miskin had said to me only this morning but dear heart what can sir william or an angel from heaven do in some sorts of dangers if one might ask for one's confidential satisfaction what does sir william think of this affair of the church door End of part two of chapter twenty eight